the first Lucha Libre mask maker, the birth of CMLL, and a maniac who would release a bag of angry bats into the audience before his matches. It's part two of the birth of Lucha Libre. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, we're back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. My name's Nick Gossard. I am a professional wrestling promoter, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. I love this stuff. I love the rich, deep, weird history of pro wrestling. And I'm here with Chongo Bronson. I'm here with Electro. And we're going to be continuing our story of the birth of Lucha Libre. And some of these stories, like we always say, you may be saying, Nick, Chongo, Electro, I heard it this way. I heard that story that way. What's the deal? And you know what? You might have, and heck, that might even be true. It's an oral tradition, which means it immediately becomes lies upon lies upon fantasy upon myth as soon as the story gets told. So who the heck knows what the truth is? Sometimes we do our best to tell the best truth we can find. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Last episode, we got caught up discussing the birth of Lucha Libre as the French army introduced wrestling to Mexico, bare knuckle boxing during the revolution. And now here we are ready for part two of the birth of Lucha Libre. And that brings us back to what we were talking about before we got sidetracked with Antonio Martinez, who started making boots for wrestlers. Uh, He would make the boots with extra ankle and arch support, which absorbed more impact, protected the ankles during throws and lateral movement. And his first major customer was also his favorite wrestler, Charo Aguayo. I fucked that up, didn't I? No, that was perfect. I am so perfect, so perfect. Nailing nailing it. And Charo Aguayo, I assume you're familiar with uh, that name? Yeah, Uh, the Aguayo name, which comes from uh, Perro Guayo, who was a big star 70s and 80s, and his son, El Hijo del Perro Guayo, who tragically passed away in the ring. But those that last name uh, holds weight in the lucha world. And Charo Guayo, who sang the bootmaker's praises throughout the industry, and it bought him plenty of business. Martinez soon became the de facto king of wrestling gear in Mexico City, And this brought uh, Cyclone McKay to his door. He asked Martinez to make a mask for him. Because once again, this isn't like today where you can go on Amazon high spots and say, hey, can you get me like a cheap piece of fabric that I can barely see out of and I can't hear anything in? This is one of the reasons why in contemporary worked pro wrestling, I honestly have a very high opinion of Lucha, even some of the bad ones, because you don't have peripheral vision. You have something covering your ear so you cannot communicate properly. A lot of your senses are taken away. You don't necessarily have the same breathing ability. So there's a lot of handicaps while wearing a mask. So when you see somebody who's a fantastic wrestler while wearing a mask, that is even more impressive than it could have been. And Martinez, he made a few different prototypes, um, most of which were difficult to wear in a match, as we were just saying, hard to breathe, hard to see, whatever, before making the multi-piece mask design that is still used to this day. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine trying to work through uh, a long, you know, when you talk about the, the, the headline events, you know, going 60 minute Broadway and doing that with your peripheral vision uh, partially blocked or not being able to hear. I mean, like, I want to know what, but what's your excuse? Like you took your mask off, bro. Yeah. So, uh, with the mask <laughs> on, it's definitely hard, but it also comes down to your instinct and your ring awareness. So when you're up there, you're wearing a mask and you know, you're in your match. So you have to comes back to your ring awareness. Like I was saying, uh, be aware of where you're at in the ring. Uh, hearing the guy coming, his footsteps, so you know you could position yourself to, for what's next. Um, another thing is like it's harder when you have a mask like the original Sankara mask, how it's just fully closed even on the eyes. That's even harder because it uh, basically doesn't let you see as well as if you had your eyes open. Plus, with no nose in your mask, it's also hard to breathe. But now it's freaking amazing without my mask. I could like breathe air that I never thought I could breathe before. He doesn't even do cardio anymore. I don't. Who needs cardio? And uh, like just thinking about current day, 
like I said, the mask when you take it away sometimes is an important storytelling element because it allows you to reinvent yourself. And it also passes a torch. You usually don't see wrestlers losing their mask unless they're close to retirement or they're about to make a big change. A lot of wrestlers from Mako when they get signed by WWE will lay down their mask because they know WWE doesn't want a mask. And if you do come in with a mask, they're just going to book you into the gosh darn ground. Blue house party. <clears throat> exactly. So you're able to use that mask, the Mascara Contro Mascara or, you know, Mascara Contro Caballero. Is that uh, how you say it for hair versus yes. mask? Caballero. I, I was close, you know. I was close, just needed a name. Yep. And uh, that's a storytelling element where you use your mask to elevate somebody else because that's a passing of the torch. They take your Sort of like a rub, per se. Exactly. They, you, know, you hand your mask over ceremonially. There are stories of wrestlers like uh, El Santo who would have a room filled with the masks of wrestlers he took, whether that is gimmick storytelling or if it was legitimate. It means something psychologically. This person didn't just beat you in the ring. They took your identity. Yeah, I think... And that, that sort of concept, people have been familiar with it and maybe not even realized it. Something like Dread Pirate Roberts in, you know, A Princess Bride, where the gimmick is so good, the mask of, of the character is passed on from generation to generation because it has become a mythical thing on its own, you know, or like multiple Robins, right? Sometimes a gimmick gets passed on because the, the, the buildup that, that that gimmick has created, it, it deserves to live on. And we see that a lot in Lucha Libre, multi-generations using the same name. Santo, Hijo de Santo, yeah. Grandson of Santo, yeah. um, Blue Demon, Blue Demon Jr., Wagner, yep. Son of Wagner. Uh, Villano too, Villano Tercero, Hijo de Villano Tercero, Villano Tercero Jr. And there's also, uh, it became, a, I, I've noticed it became a trend now with all the juniors to go back to the classic classic designs of their father's mask. Whereas in the late 90s, early 2000s, they would take the name and just add junior to it, but they would do some crazy modifications to the mask, uh, losing basically every essence of the character. One example was Blue Demon Jr. He tried it in AAA in the 90s, where he had a mask similar to Liger's with a big horn in the front, open up in the in the dome to show his whole hair, and just like a whole space looking suit, the people didn't receive it well. They didn't like it. It was new so, coke, new yeah, coke. Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they made this whole story of where he was wearing that because he had suffered burns, severe burns, and then weeks later he came back to the original blue tights, blue mask, the original outfit his father wore, and crowd liked him again. It's very comparable to what DC did with Batman in the mid 90s where or Marvel did with several characters around the same time where you tried to like make it updated, more hip, more extreme and you lose your audience because there has to be a sense of familiarity. And if you disconnect from that, the audience disconnects from you. There has to be a constant. And whether that's a mask, whether that's a full costume, it doesn't matter the generations. It goes from father to son to grandson, and sometimes it works out very well. You know, you see people like uh, you know Mysterio Jr., uh, you know Blue Demon, uh, Hijo de Santo. Uh, you know, hopefully we don't see, even though we do, but we will not name names. When you finally get a few generations out, and you have a lousy grandson who can barely work, but is asking yeah. for too much money because of who his grandfather was. Exactly. Yes, yes. We don't we don't want to get too inside baseball, but don't. <laughs> yeah. Salvador Luteroth Gonzalez was born in 1897 and at the age of 17 dropped out of school to join the revolution. Fighting under General Alvaro Obregón against the forces of Pancho Villa. Alvaro Obregón. I did the best I could. After the war, he was a traveling tax collector. During a trip from Ciudad Juarez, he visited El Paso and witnessed his first wrestling show. The masked wrestler Gus Papas, a Greek-born grappler who was inspired by the masked marvel to don a mask of his own, and Gonzalez was inspired by the pageantry and the athleticism on display and wanted to create a wrestling promotion of his own. 
not some small town or even regional promotion. He wanted to make something big, something national. And that's something that was never really seen at that point. Keep in mind, we had the NWA, which was fractured. It was fractured pretty much from the get-go. Um, WWF and WWF and now WWE was almost a century away. So this was some very big thinking, some ballsy thinking. He was a visionary. Yeah, he he definitely um, he got the idea that okay, so this sport's getting popular. He got the idea that he wanted to make it nationally known and at that time uh when he wanted to make it nationally known was when the tv was first being introduced so he saw it as an outlet okay i could broadcast this and it could go out to millions of people not only mexico but around the world and that was later i mean we're talking the 30s we're talking a time when there was really no broadcast capacity there was no film capacity i mean yes you would shoot the matches if they were big enough on film and shop them around that's something that the promoter of gotch and hackenschmidt uh part two did and made a lot of money but still it is so visionary especially from somebody who did not have an athletic or wrestling background and that's something i can personally kind of feel a lot of connection to because when i started lucha libre and laughs I wasn't a wrestler. I had one shitty match down in Mexico when I lived there where I put on a match, did some judo throws, and just put over a local talent in a shitty boxing ring in the middle of a tiny town where 400 people lived, including myself at the time. So this is somebody who didn't come from a long line of wrestling promoters. He did not have an athletic background. He didn't have a showbiz background. He saw a wrestling show and said, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna knock it out of the park and he fucking did. Yeah, I think it. Uh, you could call this the first money mark, right? And I think it's very interesting that he came from a profession, like you said, he was a traveling tax collector. This is a guy who looks at the numbers. He sees things in X's and O's and, you know, numbers on a spreadsheet. And the fact that he believed enough in the marketability of professional wrestling to take it to a level no one else had when he came from such a strict like numbers kind of background really speaks to the marketability of the sport in as whole and obviously he was right because look what it's done since then yeah it's still great up until this day and this is a time where in the united states we had organizations like the gold dust trio tenuously handling booking coast to coast with things going wrong constantly using Carney on the telegraph to be able to keep the booking secrets secret nothing gets leaked but it was a rough time it was really before nwa blew up big there was a lot of risk very little reward meanwhile in mexico there was a man who had a singular vision no partners to really have to worry about on the creative angle from the wrestling business. He was a man with a vision and he was like, fuck you guys, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it my way. And insanely enough, he did it. Yeah, and and created the foundation for what we think of uh, Lucha Libre today. This step, this bold decision that he made, this is a huge risk. No, there was no like blueprint of success. You couldn't look at like a Vince McMahon and say, this is a viable mainstream marketable thing that we can do on this level. He was the first guy to go all in on professional wrestling. And like I said, the, the ripple effect has left a permanent mark on the culture of Mexico and Lucha Libre today. That's yeah. That's right. And it's uh, one of the, aside from soccer, it's, to my opinion, the most popular sport in Mexico. Because it is singularly Mexican. Lucha Libre, soccer is international. Soccer is England. Soccer is Germany. Soccer is South Africa. Lucha Libre is Mexico. All the heroes are Mexican. All the stars are Mexican. They stand not just as amongst, but for the Mexican people. They are the Avengers of Mexico. They are the Justice League of Mexico. And when we uh, eventually talk about Mexican wrestling cinema, the El Santo movies, the Blue Demon movies, that takes it to a next level. We will see masked heroes joining forces to fight the forces of darkness. 
decades before Marvel movies were hitting number one in the box office. That's right. And I always say El Santo is the best superhero, not because he had superpowers, but because he could beat mummies, he could beat Frankenstein, he could beat werewolves with a single chop. He didn't need superpowers. He just needed chops. And again, this is a conversation we'll have on a later episode. But if you watch uh, Santo y Blue Demon contra Dracula y el Hombre Lobo, or Contra los Muertos, or uh, uh, Los Monsters. Santo contra las Mujeres Vampiro. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, uh, treasure, Tesario? Uh, treasure, Tesoro. Yeah, Tesoro de Dracula, where Santo goes through what was essentially Dr. Evil's time machine from Austin Powers 2 to fight Dracula for his treasure. These are insane movies where Mexican wrestlers fight monsters and supervillains or disappear into the Bermuda Triangle or fight the Momios de Guanajuato. And if you don't know what a mummy of Guanajuato is, Google that shit is one of the craziest museums I have ever been to. Maybe that'll be a half-poor episode to be determined. But these are culturally singular. They are Mexican. They are Mexican heroes. You don't see anything like this really anywhere else other than American comic books, but these men were real. Yeah, I don't think you can encapsulate an entire culture and make it universally recognizable the way you can with a silhouette of a lucha mask and to know exactly what that is, what that represents, the land that that's from, there's no equivalent to that for anything in American sports. The, the archetype of a lucha mask being the visual representation of an entire people, an entire culture, it, it truly shows the power of what lucha libre has become in modern day pop culture. Yeah, and me growing up in Juarez, growing up in El Paso, Texas, uh, to me, those were my superheroes. Obviously, I liked Spider-Man, I liked Wolverine, you know, the X-Men, Batman, all them. But to me, uh, they were my superheroes because I actually saw them on TV and I actually saw them fighting basically evil, which is what it goes down to, good versus evil. Yeah, it's a situation where uh, you see the technical versus the rudo and there's no narratively there's nothing that's a narrative difference between what you're seeing in the ring and what you're seeing in a Marvel comic book. Uh, Santo versus the mummies, Santo versus Tienemblas in the ring. Tell me a emotional difference between that and Wolverine versus Sabretooth or let Batman me, versus the let Joker. Let me pause you right there. Fun fact, there was a movie where Tienemblas played Satan or Satanás and he actually fought Santo in a movie. Which one was that? I believe it was... Um, I can't remember the title, but it was known that Tinieblas uh, actually took on the other role of Satanás. And to this day, uh, those masks that he wore in that movie as Satanás are still selling like hotcakes. I guess I have to hit up IMDb, the audience. You need to hit up IMDb, figure out what the fuck he's talking about, and we'll all watch it and discuss it on maybe a messaging thread later. Hit me up if you know what we're talking about. We'll talk about the good times of Lucha Libre Cinema. Once again, we will talk about that in depth at a later point. We're still sitting in the 1930s, where a tax collector with no background in sports promoting or anything sees a Greek wrestler um, who you know, Gus Papas, depending on which version of the stories you want to believe, was either a good mid-level champion with many triumphs or he was just a random goofball wearing a mask. I kind of feel like it was more the second, but mythology leans more towards the first. Either way, he saw this masked wrestler and said, this is the mythology I want to put everything behind. Let's fucking do this. Let's knock it out of the park. Let's make something of this. And he created a wrestling empire centered around Mexico City that has honestly was not replicated until the television era of the 90s when Vince McMahon created the WWF out of his father's regional show. Yep, that's right. That's right. And um, I mean, once again, it was like a revolutionary thing that nobody has ever seen before. 
And over after seeing that match, over the next four years, he worked to make the dream come true laying the foundation of political and business connections, saving up his own money, and finding financial backing from Francisco uh, Humadada. I may have fucked that up. I am not sure. Nope, it was good. It was good. All right. You we got Francisco right, so. Hey, I did. A, I got at least a 50%. I apologize if I fucked up the last one. He is long dead, so I apologize to a ghost. I am not hey, sure how right. this works. Nobody cares. In 1933, he debuted Empresa Mexicana de Lucha Libre, EMLL, which is today known as Consejo Mundial de Lucha Libre, CMLL. Tell us about this show. Yeah, um, so uh, in Mexico, uh, obviously there's two main uh, feds. One, the just now mentioned CMLL, Consejo Mundial de Lucha Libre, and the other one, AAA. Uh, CMLL is dubbed as La Serie Estable, which means the series is stable. Why? Because in CMLL, the matches are more uh, serious. Uh, they're more uh, mat work down to the Greco-Roman style. And then they go evolving into the high-flying Lucha Libre style. Whereas in AAA, is more entertainment, more for the show, more... Um, like uh the soap opera the soap opera yes like like uh wwe mexican version where it's more of a show than it is focusing on the wrestling whereas cmll it's strictly wrestling strictly wrestling at first they wanted to use a uh, reina nacional the major boxing venue of ciudad mexico mexico city but they essentially told him to fuck off. Uh, boxing at that point had a lot more prestige, sold a lot more tickets than wrestling. Wrestling, as we pointed out, it was more of a regional thing. It was small fry. They didn't see this guy's vision. They didn't want to invest in it. They said, take it down the fucking road, Jack. But, you know, in Spanish. Llévatelo de la carretera, pinche vato. I'm not gonna Google translate that, but it didn't sound nice. But that that's exactly what he just said. That's what it meant. Yeah, they want he he offered money. They said, uh, a quien chingala le importa, verdad? That's right, a quien chingala le importa. Who the fuck cares? Do both of you guys speak Spanish? He is impressing me. Yeah, with this I feel like you yeah. should have brushed up a little bit. He uh, is like pronouncing it perfect. Hablo gringo espanol, verdad? Um, I lived in Mexico for a year. Um, I did go to lucha shows. I at a small town. I mean, you know, we're talking small town, like a fucking village in the desert. I told everybody about my jujitsu and judo background. They convinced me to put on a mask and try to do Lucha Libre. It was terrible. Whatever you're picturing, it was 10 times worse. I could barely see. Um, I threw a guy a little too hard. And then I, you know, I, I did the did the job I was uh, not paid for by putting him over. Mexico is a wild place. If you ever have a chance to live there, fucking do it. Stay away from the tourist areas, live in the culture, have fun, learn, party, do your thing. That's right. Most definitely stay away from the tourist areas because that's where um, the, uh, let's say, common folk hang out and they know that tourists have money. So they um, not so kindly ask for you to give them money. When I lived in Mexico, we spent some time in uh, Puerto Vallarta. Mm -hmm. yeah. There were some tourists who were being very abusive to the locals, just the ugly Americans, as you can imagine. We'd been down there for like eight months at the time. We, we're, we It's like funny being a gringo and being like, another gringo, Pizza Gavacho, you know, fuck off, fucking yeah, yep. foreigner. That's uh, right. We had a trunk load of uh, mezcal con peyote. So we're taking the mezcal, infusing it with peyote, Jesus. And we had like four bottles of that along with some weed in our car. They didn't care about drugs or booze. They just cared about guns. So we were in the clear. We decided to get these fucking gringos who were abusing the locals. We took them to the beach. We got them drunk. We sold their wallets, passports, and shoes. Kept the cash, threw the rest in the ocean. I assume the statute of limitations in another country is fine. So maybe I'll leave this in, but that's a decision for me later. You did good. You in did short, good. visit Mexico. Yes, no. Yep. I mean, as my as my people would put it, eres cabron. You are the man. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. And I have to say, my own experience south of the border has been tremendous. I uh, the first time I was ever in a hippodrome, old chap, I was in a 
what I thought was a shoot, and I got a boss rooting pulled on me where I didn't know I was, I was <laughs> taking the W. That was, uh, I okay. actually, I had a fight against Aaron, if you know who that is. He fought Rich Franklin and Andre Arlovsky. He was an original OG team punishment guy, older than Tito. And so he decided that he was gonna put me over basically to help the team. Unbeknownst to me, this guy, I thought he was gonna kill me, right? And I hit him and he's like, ow. And I, I mean, I knew like he was just like, hit me. Like, and it was so, it was such a shock, but those are the kind of things that can happen in Mexico. I bought my house off of three nights of doing MMA in Mexico because they can do three fights in one night. And I bet my entire purse on myself every round of that tournament. So I came home with 38 grand instead of seven grand. And that's the beauty of, of going south of the border because they love the sport and the art of yes. violence, whether it's boxing, whether it's pro wrestling, the Mexican people have a true and passion. And they also love betting. They also betting? love betting. Yes, yeah. When I lived in Mexico, yeah, the um, so many things that I went to, whether it was cockfighting or boxing or bullfighting, the amount of money that changed hands in betting was insane. And that was true. Once again, we tie this into the history of pro wrestling before it was obviously a work where it was obviously show business. That's where the money was yeah. yep. in the betting. So they settled for the Arena Modelo, which was a rundown, abandoned building, practically falling apart, but it was home. Sort of like my house. Exactly. He lives a terrible life and you should all feel sorry for him. But business was hot. The product was solid. By their first year anniversary show, they were hitting capacity with 5,000 people attending these shows. It was hot, it was popular, the product was solid, and better yet, Gonzalez was the luckiest motherfucker in town. He literally won the lottery. He took his winnings and invested it in a new building. He built the 6,500-seat Arena Coliseo as the new home for EMLL. Yeah, that's right, Arena Coliseo, most wrestlers, uh, there's a saying in Lucha Libre, if if you're a wrestler and you haven't stepped foot at Arena Coliseo, you're not really a wrestler. You're not really a luchador. Yeah, that's essentially the mecca of professional wrestling in Mexico. In so. Mexico, yes. That's the, like, we could say the the Vatican of Lucha Libre. The garden. Yeah, yeah the like, garden. there, there yes. are so many meccas of pro wrestling, whether it be Madison Square Garden, whether it be the ECW Arena, whether it be, I completely forgot the fucking name of the shitty box where the Von Erichs ran shows. <laughs> you know, the- uh, I'm The so, Oriental. The that, Oriental The Oriental theater. for Triple L. I am so happy that I got to see PWG shows before they moved into that old theater in downtown LA. There are buildings that are rich, sometimes with decades, sometimes with a century of history in it. Sometimes it's boxing, sometimes it's wrestling. You know, the old, uh, you know, arena, the Joe Lewis in Detroit where the Red Wings would play. There are buildings that are important, not just to the history of a sport, but to the culture they are built around. And every single building that EMLL stepped foot in was one of those. That's right. And, um it, it was good. It was good for the business. It was good for his company because that's when he started to take off and that's when people started looking at him. Uh, aside from boxing, people started turning their heads to Lucha Libre. And as business began to skyrocket, attendances were starting to go up. We began to see masked wrestlers beginning to fill the ranks of the roster. One of the early stars was El Murcigato. Did I say that right? How about did I fuck that up? El Murcielago. That is better than mine. Uh, it translates to the bat. Born Jesus Velasquez Quintaro, he was the first local Mexican masked star on a huge stage in EMLL in these big arenas in front of thousands and thousands of people. He was born on October 30th, 1909 in Guanajuato, one of my favorite cities. Uh, because there's mummies there. there. You know, the mummies, you know, and El Santo fought those mummies. You can watch the movie. If you want to see some crazy shit, you want to hear a weird story, just Google mummies of Guanajuato. You will see what I'm talking about. Crazy museum full of mummies. You can go visit it today. Crazy I did. Museums, crazy conspiracy theories. So All he, of it. Go he was it. born on the Day of the Dead in the city of the mummies. 
and he became the bat. Yes, the bat. It's it's as macabre as you can possibly be in the pro wrestling business. I would say that that rivals the Undertaker without the from, TV presence. Exactly. Oh yeah, from, I mean, being from Death Valley. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. I mean, I wonder if Bruce Wayne stole his gimmick. And speaking of Wanawatu, another fun history uh, aside. When I went there, there's a giant statue up on a hill of a man carrying a shield and a torch. It is a memorial, uh, an honorarium, to a man who during the revolution ran through and set fire to all the army barracks and ran away, but he was so strong, he was able to carry a shield of metal on his back to keep the soldiers from being able to shoot him as he ran away, and he is now a hero of the city. Dude, I did that the last time we had the after party, but it was like 24 pack of MGD when the <laughs> when the store is about to close. Yeah. Do you remember that? I came in like a hero, brother. Yeah, I did that with a, a bag full of 40 ounces at a party. Not all heroes wear capes. Sometimes they wear shields. Sometimes they wear cases of beer. We're That's all right. learning something today. Everything is a moral gray area. The more you know. He debuted as Alberquiado and Mascarado, the masked bat, against American Jack O'Brien in 1938. El I'm sorry for my bad Spanish. I do the best I can, but I am after all. That's all right. That's only your second goof. Ah, I'm a terrible, terrible gringo. His vicious style got him disqualified from the match, setting the tone for his career. He would dress in all black, mask, trunks, cape, all black, and would release a bag of live bats into the crowd before the match started. That sounds like a really bad idea post-COVID. <laughs> yes, but that, uh, you already talked about it, and that was one, gonna be one of my fun facts that he came to the ring with a bag full of bats and he released them for his entrance. Which, animal abuse aside, is still a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. Uh, then, 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 you you the the then you have Jake the Snake, who came out with his uh, snake in a fucking potato sack. Well, basically. I wonder, okay, did the bats just like stay in the arena and then like every show there are a couple new ones? It's no, like, I'm, oh, I remember you, Doc. Yeah, they're like, oh, the, I'm, I'm pretty sure they stayed somewhere hidden up on the roof. Yeah, they're like the uh, sparrows at DIA. We're like, there's a lot of birds in this airport. It's like, I, yeah, what are we going to do? It's like that. It's like the yeah. uh, the arena for Lucha Libre. I where actually had one of my fries stolen by a bird at DIA. <laughs> <laughs> His evil reputation grew even more when he allegedly knocked the eye out of an opponent during a match. Some say they were there and saw the eyeball fly across the ring. Some say it never happened. But as we like to say on the show, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. He competed in some of the first Mascara contra Bobby. I fucked that up. How do we say this? Hair ver uh, mask versus hair. Mascara contra cabellera. I am terrible with my Spanish pronunciations. Thank you so much, Electro. And in 1940, had his mask removed after losing the match, becoming the first major luchador to do so. Uh, yes, that's right. He was the first um, major luchador to do so. Uh, ever since then, there's been plenty of epic mask versus mask matches, mask versus hair. Uh, some of them, I mean, some of them were, let's be real, some of them were butt cheeks, but the majority of them were super amazing. Uh, one of them I remember from my childhood, uh, well, not my childhood, from my dad's uh, young teenage wild years, was in Juarez with two of the major stars from there, Cinta de Oro and Rocky Star, when they did a mask versus mask match. Uh, Rocky Star, who was the super major baby face, lost his mask. And it got to the point where a lot of uh, people in the crowd, mostly uh, the women who found him attractive, they cried. They literally cried, like cried, bawled their eyes out and it was from then, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was from then when Cinta de Oro turned heel. Makes me think of when uh, Dr. Wagner lost his mask and a uh, yes. good friend of mine, good friend of us, former NWA tag team champ, Royce Isaacs tweeted, a lot of women just found out they're not really dating Dr. Wagner. <laughs> that That's is true. right. That but is right. I think I think even more than the, the significance of being the first to lose his mask in that way, I mean, talk about a trendsetter. He was the first masked 
mainstream lucha wrestler. He was the first guy, as far as I know, that has used such a grandiose gimmick for his entrance yes. as releasing bats. I mean, that's pretty yeah, that's wild. outlandish for first the time. First of all, where did he get the bats from? Yeah, and then- The getting place. But but just oh. talk about a trendsetter. First mass wrestler, first guy to, that has taken, at least in Mexico, the concept of a gimmick and an entrance to that level. And then to be the first guy to lose a mask and to establish that significance for the entire Lucha Libre culture, it just speaks to how significant he was. It's kind of like if you would put things in, you know, maybe the 50s, you know, some point where wrestling was a work, it was a hippodrome, and say you went back in time and introduced The Undertaker in 1950, where something like that was so unheard of, so groundbreaking, so insane that how do you even fucking reply to that? How do you react? And you have to keep in mind that this guy came out, he was releasing bats, dressed up in a mask and matching gear. He wasn't just simply a grappler wearing a mask. That was his character. That was his persona. And they didn't have television at this point. These weren't matches that you saw on TV. There wasn't a big pay-per-view. They had to build the emotions and the storytelling organically in front of a recurring live audience. They had to make people care who were buying tickets to every fucking show. It sounds like he was truly a trendsetter and ahead of the curve when it comes to eliciting those emotional responses through super, super theatrical elements to his performance. And that's really awesome. And this is a man who not only was a popular star, as you pointed out, he influenced generations, generations of pro wrestling to this day. He was the first major character wrestler, even though he could perform in the ring and he had the bona fides. This is a man who came out with a character. He was, you know, he, he did this before Gorgeous George. He did this before many of the character wrestlers that we saw popping up starting in like the 50s, 60s, and then getting more popular in the 70s. This is a man who made theatrics, the grand guignol of horror and wrestling, something so unheard of that you can imagine a wrestling crowd in 1939 going, holy shit, what are we even fucking watching? This guy, like I I would feel unsafe. to believe he was actually that character. Yeah, you'd be like clutching your child and your wife and wondering which you're going to sacrifice first should he come at you. Yeah, terrifying. Especially with those bats he released. Like, holy fuck, am I going to get bit? Yeah, this is, like I said, this is a time where it's not TV. Kayfabe was more a loose concept than a codified rule in pro wrestling, as it was in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where you would have legitimate tough guys as champions in case the local tough guy took a poke at you. This was a time between the collapse of pro wrestling as a legitimate sport in the, you know, around the 1915 marker before things left that gray area of, is it a work? Is it theatrics? Is it a legitimate sport? It's just a crazy thing you went to as your father went to and you look at and go, holy shit, who is this fucking maniac in a mask letting bats go while we're trying to eat our popcorn and enjoy this goddamn show? Years later, a young upstart luchador dared to call himself El Murcielago Enmascarado Dos. How did I do that one? El Murcielago Enmascarado Dos. So you were, you were close. I was close. I was close. You know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. The original masked bat was not happy about this and complained to the athletic commission because Mexico does have a national commission that governs wrestling, very different from the USA. Have you ever dealt with the Mexican commission? That's right. Um, one time when uh, we were we went to wrestle in El Paso. Uh, a couple buddies of mine that wrestled in Juarez, they invited me, uh, so we went. But in Juarez, in Mexico, you need a license to wrestle. So if you don't have that license, they basically don't let you go in the ring even though you're booked. And uh, so they have a whole commission of uh, one of, one of I know one of the uh, commissioners is El Fantasma, who is also a big star of the 90s. Um, it's him, it's a couple more guys. So you do a test, conditioning, tumbling, grappling, and then they test your mat skills. So if you have all that and you pass the test, 
they give you your license to be a wrestler. And so you could use that license to basically wrestle all over Mexico, um, even in the US in some states where they say they ask for your license, you have that license and you say, you know what, I'm over here on business, here's my license, we're good. And I've been part of shows in states that require a state athletic commission license. There's a pro and con to this. I do understand wanting to make sure if people are in a good enough shape to not die or to make sure there's nothing icky in their blood that could possibly affect somebody if you know it's a death match, something like that. When I used to referee in New Mexico, you would have to pay the money for a license. They sent you a little card. It said, you're a professional wrestler, even if you're just a referee. I like to keep it in my pocket because it made me feel cool. And a doctor had to be there at the show, at the show's expense, to perform physicals on all the wrestlers. You had to make sure you had good health, that your heart would hold out, that you were in good shape. Before you went out to the ring, and there is the argument of, hey, this is performance art versus this is a legitimate athletic competition. That's a conversation that can be had all day long without resolution, so we won't spend too much time on it, but it is kind of an interesting concept. I have known wrestlers that have gone down to Mexico, and they do, they have to show their skills before they're allowed to perform no matter what. I know wrestlers that have had to go down and and you know if they lost their mask. This was a situation with uh, Rey Mysterio in the late 90s. Yeah. He lost his mask in WCW. He tried to go down to Mexico to do shows and they're like, "Sorry asshole, you lost your mask." Yeah, so you have that, to take it off. That means something. That we're not just doing that as a gimmick, as a storyline, as whatever. Yes. This down there down there it's uh legit. It's enforced that if you lose your mask, you have to wrestle without your mask. Um, not so much now because um, another uh, late great wrestler, Silver King, he had lost his mask uh, down uh, early 90s, mid 90s. And then uh, they say a lot of luchadors say five years later, you can put your mask back on. So he did. He put his mask back on. Um, there's plenty more that have done that. And but back in the day, you that they did enforce it if you lose your mask you have to wrestle here without your mask i don't care if it was in the u.s you come here we know about it so you have to wrestle without your mask and i do want to before we get back to the main narrative point out one of the greatest follies in my opinion in wrestling march history when wcw with eric bischoff at the helm told Rey mysterio you have to lose your mask Rey mysterio looked like he was about 12 years old no longer became believable as a competitor. But more importantly, how many Rey Mysterio masks could they have sold at the merch stand? Yeah, you want to talk about perhaps the most marketable single piece of wrestling clothing you could sell to yeah. kids at that time. Yeah. I mean, Rey Mysterio is like literally a superhero in the ring. It's like Spider-Man, the way yes, he moves like the and the Spider-Man at the time, yeah. He, he embodied, and I think for a lot of American wrestling fans and kids growing up, Rey Mysterio was the introduction to everything that Lucha Libre was. He yeah. was sort of like the microcosm of what it meant to be Lucha Libre yes. if you've never seen it before. The mask, the high-flying moves, the precision. Yeah, and it's happened to me where uh, we've wrestled at festivals, Taco Fest. Um, a lot of fans, when I was wearing my mask, they'd see me, they'd try to take a picture with me and they're like, Oh, like Rey Mysterio, like Rey Mysterio, like Rey Mysterio. Um, at first it would bother me because like, dude, I'm not fucking Rey Mysterio, you know? But then I figured, you know, he opened the doors for all luchadors uh, in the US. Yeah. Rey Mysterio from day one became an amazing ambassador in American wrestling for Lucha Libre. And decades later, literally decades, he has never let anybody down on that one. He is to yeah. this day a top level competitor. He is to this day a top level human being. He represents Lucha Libre, the the essence, the essence, the um, I guess the uh, the skills of luchadors just because of all his matches, the things he does, even one as a luchador when you're like, oh, well, I could do that too. Well, I could do that too. But yes, okay, you can. But I mean, you see him, he could even raise a hat. He could just get in the ring, 
raise his hand, and the people would go nuts. He has embodied the soul of Lucha Libre for 20 plus years. And I honestly wish him all the best because he has never let anyone down. He has never been that hero that makes you regret looking up to him. But getting back to the story at hand. So years after his retirement, El Musialago saw El Musialago and Mascarado Dos appear on the scene, and he was kind of mad about somebody stealing his gimmick, and he complained to the Athletic Commission they found in his favor. And the new masked bat was forced to change his name. And anybody out there feeling bad for the guy, you shouldn't. Don't feel bad for this young wrestler who changed his name to El Santo and did all right for himself with his career. Yes, and one thing, fun fact, it happened to me because um, I was still wearing my mask. I had gotten a new mask made. We went to wrestle in, I believe it was Wyoming with Triple L. Nebraska. Nebraska, yes. Sydney, and, Nebraska. In and the... I sold one of my masks, ring worn, and the kid bought it. Yeah, the kid bought it. Okay, we fast forward a month later, uh, another great luchador from here, Colorado, Delta Junior, one of my great buddies. He hits me up and he says, hey, so I'm out here. And there's a dude wearing your master wrestle. Oh, so, oh no. with all due respect, I say, what in the goddamn fuck? What is his name? So he tells me his name. I send him a message. I said, hey, you know you're using my mask, right? No, no, this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. I said, okay, look at my Facebook profile. Look at all my pictures, and you're going to see it's my mask. I'm like, okay, so now you take it off, or I'm going to go all the way over there. I am going to kick your ass. And you're not going to wear it anymore. So the guy's like, no, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. So he stops. So he obviously didn't want me to kick his ass. But I'm like, yeah, my buddy told me that when I wrestle over there, that's my mask, dude. This is my design. I sent him pictures of me, my drawings of the mask. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, you're still an asshole. I can't imagine the level of anger that would induce, the audacity to steal my gimmick, especially in the archetypal, like in Lucha Libre, your mask is disproportionately you yeah, it's more than what, anything else. It it's represents what you have your worked. entire body of work. Yeah, it's what you have worked your whole life to develop. And that's something we have seen many times in Lucha Libre shows where a big star, comes to town, they do a small show. They look to the back of the venue and they see some asshole selling their knockoff masks for $5 and they That's lose right. their shit. And I don't blame them. You know what? Because every $5 shitty mask that that person is selling is taking potentially a $20 properly made bit of merchandise out of their hands. Yes, but I think on the flip side, and I'm not condoning you know, bootleg merch, but I will say this, it speaks to the reach of Lucha Libre that 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 wrestler's mask is important enough to be bootlegged, that he could show up to a show where someone is selling a copy of his merchandise. That speaks to the level of the power of the Lucha mask. Yeah. And that's a great place to leave things off because we have, gone from the French occupation of Mexico through the early days of Greco-Roman being introduced to the nation to bare-knuckle boxing being called Lucha Libre to the birth of EMLL, which is now CMLL, which is still rocking it today. CMLL is still a huge show. It is still going on in the Arena Mexico. It is still on TV. It is still being watched international. It is still relevant on the same level as WWE in the United States, which is completely bananas. It's great. And also, they they are, um, in my eyes, one of the very few companies that export luchadors to Japan. They are working with New Japan and many of their up-and-coming stars go to New Japan to make a name for themselves, and then they come back as bigger, even bigger stars. Never heard of them. 
So decades before Vince McMahon took over the American wrestling scene, Salvador Lutheroth Gonzalez created a wrestling empire centered in Mexico City, which led to the golden age of Lucha Libre, with stars like El Santo, Blue Demon, Mil Vascaras becoming international superstars in the newly opened Arena Mexico. But those are stories for another day. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening this long. We have talked for a long time, but it's such a fascinating story, such a fascinating concept, and such an important concept in the history of pro wrestling. That's right, yeah. Um, and it's something that, I mean, like, I'm a luchador, and I've been wanting to be a luchador since I was a little kid, so it's like a very special topic to me, and I wish we could keep talking about it, but you know, we could leave that for another day. We are not hardcore history. I am not Dan Carlin. This cannot be a four hour lecture. So we're gonna uh, have to leave you on this note for now. Chongo, any final words? Yes, you cannot enjoy the tapestry of professional wrestling without Lucha Libre. It is an elemental archetypal pillar of everything that is beloved in pro wrestling. And it's awesome to understand the development of how that took root in the culture and became what we love and know as the flavor of pro wrestling that is Lucha Libre today. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, whatever the term is for what we do on Instagram. We'll be doing video versions on YouTube. Like us and more importantly, review us. Give us five stars on whatever format you listen to us on. It's not for our egos. It just makes us more visible to other people who might be interested into this concept. And until then, listen, learn, and party with your pro wrestling history nerds aficionados. It was a pleasure to have you today, brother. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you guys. And yeah, like they said, uh, like them on Facebook, uh, whatever podcast platform you guys have please download it please listen because it's this is history if you're a wrestling fan you need to be hearing this that's right thank you nerds good night cut print martini boom <laughs>